Joining me now is Spencer Ackerman. Uh, Spencer, this is your, I believe, third time on the show. Very happy to have you back. How are you? I'm good, Jordan. As George W. Bush once said, I hit the trifecta. (laughs) (laughs) Congrats. It's an impressive milestone. There are guests where we wrap up and we decide that never again. But but not with you. We we welcome you back with open arms. I'm looking forward to getting the third time (laughs) guest patch for my for my hoodie yeah or denim jacket well, you don't you get will. a it's a it's a sticker for for three you don't get the patch until five appearances five. okay tears makes sense let's tears. not get ahead of ourselves yeah okay. yeah, yeah yeah i'm not i'm not on i'm not on ken cliffenstein's level yeah ken's got the <laughs> plaque already <laughs> yeah ken, ken's number is probably hanging from the insurgent rafters at this point like the jersey's up there uh, forever it's more of a have you seen this man poster uh, than than a banner, but uh, yeah, he, he's he's definitely on display. We'll say that. <laughs> uh, what a what a day to have you back! I reached out to you because you know an iconic American diplomatic figure has left us, left this world, this tiny blue marble, and he's gone off into the ether, maybe somewhere warm, hopefully. But Henry Kissinger is no longer with us. And you have an obituary in Rolling Stone, which I thought framed his legacy in a accurate way and didn't mince words and didn't try to pretend like he was simply a controversial or polarizing figure. The title is Henry Kissinger, work criminal beloved by America's ruling class, finally dies. Now, did you whip this up? Just yesterday, because this is this is lengthy and well detailed. If so, it's that's an impressive feat. Uh, no, um, Noah Shackman, my twice boss and longtime, probably forever friend, um, who's the editor of Rolling Stone. I want to say in either late two thousand twenty one or early twenty twenty two, realized that you know Henry uh, was getting on in years and barring whatever metaphysical compact uh, or pharmaceutical compact, as we know he was involved with Theranos, um, Henry might have made over the years. Um, eventually, time wins all battles and asked me if if I would do um, Henry Kissinger some, some final words. Um, you know, I took that very seriously. Um, I, I felt, uh, you know, I... I First of all, can't flop on a Kissinger obituary. Uh, couldn't 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 really show my face if I did that. That that would be that would be too that would be too humiliating. Um, and secondly, that um, you know, some big shoes to fill in terms of Rolling Stone writers writing about Nixon era figures. So I wanted to I wanted to kind of you know rise to the inspiration of that challenge, um, and also. You know, as we saw, but as is completely unsurprising, I knew that whenever Kissinger was going to die, there were going to be endless whitewashing tributes to him um, in the culture at large, in media and politics. So I took a couple weeks um, and I think I gave that piece to Noah like May or June of 2022, um, which was pretty amazing because um, I figured, you know, by by the summer, you know, surely Kissinger would be dead and, you know, I, I would, you know, get the piece published, um, which also uh, to lift the journalism curtain a little bit, uh, I can't get paid until the piece is published. 
So, I, you know, all of a sudden, let me tell you a funny thing about writing an obituary for Henry Kissinger. Particularly as like, I'm, you know, I'm going through, you know, Viet Cong memoir, I'm going through, you know, The Price of Power by Cy Hirsch, um, a bunch of, you know, contemporary journalism, um, Greg Grandin's great book, Kissinger's Shadow, and a lot of others. And when you're working on uh, a long piece about Kissinger and one that's, you know, you're trying to make like worthy um, of, of the moment when he finally dies, you find yourself feeling, you know, and thinking a thought, you know, prompted by anxiety that you can't help but thinking, but is a really unique thought in this circumstance, which is, oh God, Kissinger can't die before I finish this. So like for the first time in my life, I've got like weeks of, you know, thinking to myself, like not today, Henry's got to make it through one more day. Like, you know, if, if I see a notification on my phone, I'm worried all of a sudden that, you know, Henry Kissinger has passed from this veil of tears and I am not done with this piece yet. Um, turns out, didn't have to worry about that. That was needless anxiety. Um, but it also meant that when the piece dropped, I also kind of read it newly for a while. Like, you know, just, oh, like, I forgot I said that. Huh. You know, that that line kind of hit. He also outlived other obituary writers. The, yeah, that was the New York a, Times obituary. That, that, Isn't that, that crazy? That was amazing. I mean, like, you know, it happens in in the game that, you know, obituaries, particularly of people like, you know, Kissinger's stature, um, such as it was, are, are just written so far in advance. But, you know, I am sure, um, I think, was it Thomas Whitman in the Washington Post? Or, or, or I think of someone else. Sorry to Tom, if you're still alive. <laughs> I can't remember the name. I just remember no. it being like almost yeah. a decade or more. RIP to that guy. Whatever the Washington Post's, um, you know, healthcare packages, I promise you, you know, Kissinger has something far more extravagant. Um, again, you know, investor board member in Theranos, you know, Theranos with um, George Shultz, who I think was the only other Nixon cabinet member who who lived like nearly as long as, as Kissinger. Um, uh, you know, speaking some, you know, speaking of Nick of, of Kissinger's healthcare plan, like one, you know, one anecdote about Kissinger, like so forgotten amidst all the other infamy is, you know, this guy was unbelievably wealthy. Like, and when I say unbelievably, I mean, like, we don't truly know probably the size of, um, of his actual wealth. And there came a moment um, when um, George W. Bush appointed Kissinger um, to run the 9-11 Commission, um, which was at that point, like seemingly politically perilous for Bush. And Kissinger was supposed to be the guy to kind of like swoop in and make sure that um, it didn't touch him too badly, um, which, you know, certainly the, the, the best man for that job. Like no one could take that away away from from. Kissinger. And Kissinger decided he had to decline because he quite possibly had a conflict of interest with his clients and he refused to disclose his client list. So we don't know who paid Henry Kissinger. Now, I think Occam's razor says that's the Saudis. But, you know, no doubt about that, right? Like, I'm I would be interested to know who else it is. Like, you know, did he like represent, you know, the, you know, construction magnate father, Bin Laden? Like how, like how deep does it go? You know, I have no idea. Um, but, you know, that was the kind of person who like, you could have written an outrageous editorial, an outrageous obituary about, in the seventies, the eighties, the nineties, the two thousands, the twenty tens, and now, like that's that's how outsized and I think it's fair to say scandalous but normalized Kissinger was. I mean, you touched on something 
that seems prevalent throughout his career, and that is this shroud of secrecy uh, behind which he often operated. And there would be moments throughout his career where, under his instruction or his guidance, the U.S. or allies would do something or conduct behavior in a typically horrific way. And he would, in the case of in Chile, lie about U.S. involvement the very same week. And it just seems like that is something like the the murky or non-existent details or transparency, the lying, the and then, of course, the total remorse. I think those are some elements and themes that define who he was and his work. That should be his legacy. Now, when you were writing this... Well, that and all the dead people. Well, yeah, definitely get to that. Uh, him as a you know statesman, what do you think people's takeaway should be? Because like we talk about in traditional media, legacy media, they're going with, oh, he was, a, he was one of the most prominent diplomats in the second half of the 20th century, if not the entire 20th century. And, you know, he served in the State Department. He was advisor to presidents. And they talk about him from a service to country role. But in that in that capacity, I mean, who was Henry Kissinger? What did he do and how did he advise you know, pol like political leaders, parties, candidates? How did he operate? He operated for himself. He operated on the pretext, I think, believable to a certain class um, that uh, makes foreign policy or sees as its due the making of, of U.S. foreign policy, that the objective of U.S. foreign policy is unconstrained dominance. Kissinger's context being the Cold War um, had been a balance of power that favored the United States. Um, this was not, a unipolar world was not an option for Kissinger. Once the unipolar world emerged, he did everything um, to accelerate those tendencies in terms of what his advice was. There would be a ton of hemming and hawing so he could stay on um, the side of, you know, total respectability and not completely alienate um, the the liberal internationalists, um, but always the point where he came, where he landed was the expansion of American power by means as violent as necessary. Um, as you know, for all of his you know grand statesmanship and so on, and you know unique wisdom, um, this man backed the Iraq War. Why did he back the Iraq War? Because he understood where at that point in time the winds inside the power chambers were blowing. That was Henry Kissinger. When we, you know, see discussion, as you mentioned, of Kissinger as this kind of empty vessel of service, that you know, he the you know, the great one of the great statesmen of the of the 20th century, one of the um the the architects of uh, the of of you know certainly of detente with Russia and so on you know achievements of the Cold War that sometimes are coded as dovish, but aren't. Um, ultimately, Kissinger ensured that even when American power um, looked to be on a wane there would always be an opportunity through means as unscrupulous as necessary to ensure that uh, America returned, maintained, stabilized, or enlarged this balance of power that favored, you know, America within, you know, great power conflict. Um, I think one of the reasons that you see the, the kind of, you know, persistent institutional respect for Kissinger is that there isn't a look at what, you know, and when he did succeed, right, what the costs of that success were. Um, simultaneously, that means not 
understanding, appreciating, reckoning with, um, giving appropriate respect to the enormous human devastation that undergirded this dominance, you know, this preponderance of American power. You write in your obituary, every single person who died in Vietnam between autumn 1968 and the fall of Saigon and all who died in Laos and Cambodia, where Nixon and Kissinger secretly expanded the war within months of taking office, as well as all who died in the aftermath, like the Cambodian Cambodian genocide, their destabilization set into motion, died because of Henry Kissinger. Now, some uh, in the more respectability political class might see that as an overbroad statement. Why would you say that is accurate? Why should people see all of those deaths as being directly linked to Kissinger and his actions? Because Kissinger sabotaged the Paris, uh, P- the secret Paris peace talks in 1968 between the U.S. and North Vietnam to end the war. He would ultimately get the same terms and ultimately a defeat when I believe uh, four years ish later, um, Nixon and Kissinger's foreign policy of secret bombing and Vietnamization um, ultimately uh, produced none of the, of the success that um, Nixon was determined um, to do. um, And, the reason why Kissinger did this was not because he had any faith in the folly of negotiating with the North Vietnamese, any faith that, you know, a different strategy in the war would change his fortunes, any faith in the achievability of American objectives in Vietnam. He did so because it would be value. It was valuable for him to communicate to the Nixon um, campaign that where he didn't yet have ties, that there were these secret talks going on. So he would be rewarded with a prominent position, particularly if he could communicate to the Vietnamese that they would get more favorable terms in a Republican administration, and ultimately, the Paris talks. Not only, not only do they this 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 the talks were sabotaged um, in in large part because of um, Kissinger's role funneling information as a trusted inside advisor um, to the um, I, I forget if it was the Humphrey campaign or the Johnson administration at that point, um, but it's important to remember that not only was Kissinger an extremely prominent defense intellectual. Um, with ties to both Democratic and Republican wings of of U.S. foreign policy, but that this was for him a hedged bet. This was to make sure that whomever won the election, they would be in a position of rewarding Henry Kissinger with a powerful position in U.S. foreign policy. I don't see... now. There will always be the out of saying, you know, it's counterfactual history. You know, you couldn't have known, you know, what would have happened, you know, with the Paris peace talks. Well, I think, yes, we do. Like in in either, a you know, like in a Johnson administration, a Humphrey administration sought to end the war and embraced, um, you know, secretly um, his predecessor's initiative. Um, Nixon did not. And instead, accelerate, I'm sorry, instead um, escalated the war under cover of ending it. Um, And for the longest time in American myth has maintained uh, the fiction, the myth, that that Nixon and Kissinger were about ending the war. The Washington Post reporter Don Oberdorfer um, had a legendary line, um, I believe from 1969, um, when he was listening after uh, the silent majority speech, Um, to what Nixon's actually saying about Vietnam. And he goes, that man talks about peace the way other men talk about victory. That he was using the language for peace, but taking action to to, to escalate the war. Um, I think the only conclusion that can be drawn from that, if we are taking moral stock of this person who for 
the sake of a political hedged bet, permitted four more years of war, the secret bombing of two other countries, um, countries that were formally neutral, meaning every moment, every bomb that dropped, every raid that was launched into Cambodia was illegal. Um, someone who we know um, directed bombing targets, which is unprecedented. Kissinger was national security advisor. That has no position in the constitutional chain of command over the military. So that was a... that. That means that whatever, in the sense of orders that he gave, Kissinger was was enacting a constitutional usurpation of military authority. How else to take stock of this? The 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 tens of thousands of deaths that resulted um, for Americans. That I believe two million Vietnamese. Obviously, you know, from 1965 to 1969, those can't be on Kissinger. But afterward, yes. Um, those deaths are on him. Um, there was a direct line between the secret bombing of Cambodia and the rise of the Khmer Rouge and the genocide that they enacted. That's on him. And it is a, it would have been a whitewash not to write it like that in terms that people can understand, demonstrating step by step with, you know, clearly indicated expert sources why I am saying what I'm saying, why I'm laying this on him. I'd like to explore that role and that dynamic a little bit more because I think a lot of people might assume, oh, well, he, if he was just in the government position, still a share of the responsibility falls on whoever was president at the time. Everything Hillary did, sure, uh, Obama shared a part of that burden. But could you explain this type of role that that Kissinger had that was so unique that other secretaries, other secretaries of state, and other national security advisors haven't had? How did he carve out this, such a unique position for him that other people uh, that followed do not share? Through um, ceaseless um, toadying uh, to Nixon. Um, Nixon, remember, was a foreign policy expert and saw himself as that. So Kissinger could very easily have been redundant, as was the Secretary of State um, in the first um, Nixon administration, William Rogers. Um, Kissinger outmaneuvered him. Kissinger found a way to get the FBI to wiretap his staff, much as Nixon did. Um, he was Kissinger was... Uh, willing to debase himself um, to anti-Semitic jokes that, and not really jokes, that uh, Nixon and Chief of Staff H.R. Uh, Haldeman made. Um, Nixon, uh, I'm sorry, Kissinger was extremely willing um, to engage in that same anti-Semitic rhetoric when it, it served him. Um, this, he was also extremely willing to cultivate his image um, both within uh, foreign policy circles and aggressively with the press, he was a he was an absolute press darling. He, I think it's fair to say, um, enjoyed a fair amount of that luster throughout his entire life. Um, and I don't mean to say that other people are not responsible because Nick, because Kissinger is also responsible. I am saying that among that responsibility for this direct action falls on Henry Kissinger, and uniquely in the sense that Kissinger is the one who makes the sabotaging of the, Par the secret Paris peace talks possible. So that opens the aperture um, for the rest of the war when there was a realistic possibility of ending it. No one ever before or since um, built the kind of real fiefdom um, that, that Kissinger built inside um, you know, in, inside, far, in, inside the mechanisms of U.S. foreign policy. You know, no one before or since has been national security advisor and secretary of state at the same time. Um, Nixon, I'm sorry, Kissinger uh, purged State, De state Department staff. Um, he uh, took an assiduous interest in the CIA, um, worked directly 
um, with CIA operatives in, in uh, who had um, briefs for places uh, like Chile, as I'm sure we're going to talk about. Um, many others, I think you really have to, you know, wait until, you know, Don Regan in the Reagan administration tried, but that wasn't just about foreign policy, probably not until Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney probably comes the closest. Um, and, you know, Cheney, as he was fond of saying, was a constitutional officer, meaning, you know, Supreme Court notwithstanding, you know, Dick Cheney was an elected official. Henry Kissinger was not. Let's get into uh, Chile. So, you know, some listeners, I, I would imagine many listeners uh, are familiar with this story and, and what happened there with Salvador Allende and Pinochet. Could you talk about um, what went into your your process in, in describing this? Because, you know, there's only so much you can write in obituary. There's only so much you could fit. But what do you think people should really understand about Kissinger's role? Because it does seem a little bit more detached. The U.S.'s involvement and Kissinger's involvement seems a little bit more detached here than, say, in Vietnam or Cambodia. So how what do you think the synthesis is for Kissinger's role in supporting Pinochet uh, and the ultimate death of, of Salvador Ande? Um, it was the wave. So I wanted to go into Chile because um, in most other places where, um, you know, Kissinger operates, um, where, you know, in terms of, you know, violence, um, you know, Kissinger destroys. But in Chile, he builds, in Chile, he is part of building something that looks a great deal like the temp the template for the world that we currently live in the epic that we that we currently live in um oh, the in 1970 uh Salvador Allende is elected uh the president of Chile Allende is a democratic socialist never in uh the western hemisphere I'm sorry never in um the Americas has socialism come to power um, by elections, usually because the United States makes sure that, you know, that doesn't, that's not going to happen. Um, and in Chile it did. And Kissinger immediately sets to work, uh, trying to overthrow the Allende regime. They use the CIA for it. They have, um, you know, really bald faced, even as they're lying to Congress, um, that they have any involved, that they, you know, don't have any involvement at all. Um, you know, Kissinger is saying things like, you know, why should we let, you know, the Chilean people, you know, make such a, an asinine mistake as taking their country communist. Um, uh, I forget what Kissinger aide told Cy Hirsch in The Price of Power, that Kissinger would say that Allende is more dangerous than Castro because Allende came to power democratically, and that was not something they could let stand. They try and launch a kind of January 6th-esque scheme uh, to stop the Chilean Senate from certifying Allende's election. That fails, um, and they kind of go to plan B until 1973, when their ally Augusto Pinochet enacts a military coup, greenlit, by Henry Kissinger and uh, creates, after murdering Allende, I'm, well, I'm sorry, Allende took his own life, uh, creates, after um, causing Allende's death, a reign of terror uh, that killed, I believe, over 3,000 people, tortured and disappeared tens of thousands of others. Um, and then, with the aid of uh, American uh, neoliberal economists, set to work decimating the institutional structures of uh, working people's power. Um, they privatized everything they could privatize in Chile. Uh, they opened it up uh, to uh, a flood of foreign capital. Um, so now foreign capital is coming in and buying uh, what had used to be the 
public property um, of Chile, it, its major institutions, its resources, and so on. Um, and all of this, you know, enforced um, with the might of the state, unleashed on people, um, with the full backing of the United States of America, and often with Henry Kissinger personally, um, as there was one point I want to say in 1975, um, when he visited Allende um, during a, a moment when um, I believe, you know, some form of congressional, either lack of funding or, or sanctions were being discussed, some punitive measure. Um, and Kissinger, you know, tells Allende, um, you know, I've got to issue some anodyne criticism of you. Um, don't take it personally. I think you are being, you know, treated extremely unfairly. Um, what you're doing here is heroic. And there we see um, something of a forerunner for where neoliberalism would go, um, what it would do um, to working people's um, ability to uh, enjoy not just prosperity, but baseline stability in their lives um, and replace those functions of the state um, with, you know, punitive, carceral, um, and violent mechanisms of enforcement. Um, that looks really uncomfortably like our world today, um, as very often it wasn't, you know, just Kissinger, but it was, you know, networks of people in quote unquote anti-communist circles, Cold War circles, um, that came up with with kind of what these game plans were. Um, I mean that you know in a in a loose sense, not in a conspiratorial sense. Um, and I wanted the piece to convey that you know Kissinger is dead, but his works are really present with us. Right. Pinochet's torture chambers were the maternity ward of neoliberalism. A baby delivered bloody and screaming by Henry Kissinger. This was the just and liberal world order Hillary Clinton considered Kissinger's life work. Now, there was a moment in the 2016 campaign, the clip made this made the rounds yesterday after it was announced that he died. Bernie on the debate stage called out Clinton for calling Kissinger a friend, saying she took his advice and learned a lot from him and he pointed out how he is very proud not to call Kissinger a friend, pointed to some of the many atrocities and injustices that he had been a part of or led or uh, implemented. Now, certainly no dove. Uh, I guess it could be unsurprising to many that Hillary Clinton sees Kissinger as someone to look up to and learn from. But when you talk about and think about the massive and you really just it, we don't even know the full extent uh, of the death toll that he uh, has his hands on is re and is responsible for it's estimated to be in the millions when you talk about something like that and think about the consequences of one person's actions and their role and that someone who is a very recent secretary of state and uh presidential candidate in 2016 and is still highly regarded highly regarded in democratic party circles that she feels so comfortable calling him a friend and saying that he is an advisor to her what does that say about uh, our political system the structures the inability to hold people accountable and the way the lack of scrutiny from the media or political figures etc what does that do to create the next Kissinger or, or mini Kissingers? I think it says something grotesque. Um, it reveals something grotesque about uh, the culture of U.S. foreign policy um, and not just foreign policy. Right. Because, you know, throughout all sorts of other, you know, sectors of, of, of elite life, whether it's, you know, business, whether it's cultural, you know, this is someone who had his hundredth birthday party at the Met. Um, it reveals that uh, crimes of the state are hyper-normalized, 
that they don't register as crimes. They register as statecraft. They register as policy. And the way that has to operate is by believing, whether you realize it or not, but entailing that these are not real human lives that have been ended by this, that this is an unfortunate consequence of what is necessary um, for American greatness, for American preponderance of power, um, for the uh, American standard of material comfort and geopolitical domination um, that comes along with it. Um, I should say geopolitical domination, material comfort um, that comes away with it. Comfort concentrated overwhelmingly in the hands of the classes of people that make and benefit from um, U.S. foreign policy and, and, and all of these other elite preoccupations um, that welcome Kissinger. So very unsurprising um, that they would that they would see it like that. It's also necessary to point out that Kissinger got away with all of it. There was never going to be after um, the secret bombings of Cambodia didn't advance sufficiently as an article of impeachment against Nixon, any consequence for, for, for doing any of this. And it is only natural um, that when, uh, especially, you know, elite foreign policy practitioners see a behavior that doesn't have a consequence attached to it, it then becomes, it, it, it traverses the realm from, um, and this was the case of, you know, the secret bombing of Cambodia, uh, from outrage to option. It's an option in the future. If, you know, Thomas Schelling, an important defense intellectual um, and contemporary of Kissinger's, um, absolutely like like lambasted the, the secret bombing of Cambodia. Like that was considered really outrageous, you know, for all of the reasons we, we discussed, you know, previously, as well as the, the, the fact that like this was not, this was an act of war that was never declared by Congress. This was, this was simply a presidential decision that he could bomb a country because he felt like it and didn't have to submit that uh, to Congress, let alone respect, you know, Congress's wishes um, for its, you know, constitutionally delegated um, powers over war. And how quaint in 2023 does that all sound, right? Because what I've just described there as an outrage is now the daily circumstance of U.S. foreign policy after 9-11. Whenever someone dies, and especially when someone who is at best controversial or polarizing, but more often than not just purely and uniquely evil, there is often a you know kind of tut-tutting from you know, politicians, members of the media, oh, you shouldn't celebrate this person's death. And of course, there's the whitewashing, which we're certainly seeing about their legacy. But how do you feel? And granted, we could we see how you feel personally about him in this piece. But how do you feel about celebrating people's death or centering obituaries or their legacy on what you know the the moderate or or, or respectable media might call uh, an offensive way of framing it or negative their negative uh, history. Do you do you think there's any space for that argument? So I wasn't rude to Henry Kissinger. I recited what he did. I recited how he was received. I described accordingly, um, certain uh, conclusions that derive from, from these things. I didn't call him fat. I didn't call him a self-hating Jew. Um, I didn't, you know, you see what I'm saying? Like, I, 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 yeah, yeah. I, find, I find it, I'll, tell, I'll say this. I had a conversation um, this morning uh, with my eight-year-old um, 
because she was like, you're happy he's dead. And I was, and I said to her, it is a bad habit of mind and habit of the soul to cheer when anyone dies, that such a thing um, has to come as part of a component of a basic respect for human life. On the flip side of that is that someone who demonstrates that they don't have basic respect for human life voids that contract. I think that we have to view our shared humanity as that kind of contractual transaction. We each respect our humanity. When that breaks down, the contract is off. Now, I don't believe you should, you know, necessarily do this, you know, you know, you can, you know, you can slippery slope that to death. And I don't mean to, you know, to want to, to want to do that. Um, but, you know, at scale, Henry Kissinger really is in, in quite a unique class. And it would, as I continue to, you know, tell my daughter and in terms that are like appropriate for an eight-year-old, um, this man was responsible for so much death that it would disrespect all of those who he killed to not recognize with some relief that a great villain no longer walks the earth among us um, having never experienced the consequences of his own actions, let alone the consequences of the orders he gave, the decisions he made, the choices he took that resulted in the end of so many people. Now, could you talk about why, whether it's the U.S. not really participating in, in the ICC or just purely protecting their own, why is it that someone like Kissinger with such an awful past doesn't face any repercussions, either domestically or internationally? Well, um, the prerogatives of power ultimately serve their own ends. Um, the United States is, you know, kind of um, uses a certain sleight of hand in describing um, the, the global order that it presides over. Um, it is not one of international law. It is one um, known as something that sounds kind of similar, but is, you know, you can see in practice extremely different. Um, the rules-based international order, a term that you've probably heard before. It sounds like international law. It seems like it should operate like international law. But really what it is, is a circumstance whereby not like actions result in like consequences, but those consequences are determined by proximity to and um, an adverse relationship with American power because America sets the rules. This is what it is to be an empire. You act, you are not acted upon. The rules benefit you and your friends and punish you and your enemies. It essentially creates this asterisk around the concept of international law, which still like, you know, coexists with it in some important ways. And very often, you know, as it suits American prerogatives, the rules-based international order will, cha will channel itself through the mechanisms and precincts of, of international law and the processes as well. But never would it ever allow a practitioner you know, and I'm not even talking about on the scale of Henry Kissinger, but certainly never Henry Kissinger, to have to go before any, you know, institution that could impose a consequence and say what this man did was criminal because that would indict the entire foreign policy and foreign policy making um, class of the United States that it would be saying the United States' actions on the world stage are criminal. Now you look at 
Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Chile, Argentina, Cyprus, um, uh, East Timor, uh, Bangladesh. Uh, we, we can we can really go on. Um, and you would, I think, you know, fairly say that is in fact criminal behavior, but that is simply not the the way the system we have is is ever going to be interested in operating. It would have to be overwhelming um, small d democratic checks that impose that kind of accountability um, of the sort that we saw in Chile, what happens to those? Um, and, you know, domestically, um, we, we, we functionally have the same, you know, sort of circumstance where um, elite impunity um, really, you know, trumps you know, what, what you might think of as, as a kind of more ordinary sense of equal justice under law. Um, I don't, you know, Kissinger, where to begin? Kissinger had his own aides illegally wiretapped. He, like, like by the FBI, like, but is the FBI going to arrest itself for, for, for carrying out an illegal wiretap? Are you, are you suggesting to me that the FBI performs illegal wiretaps? You know, it's 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 just not. You know, it's 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 like you know asking a duck to you know lay an egg that hatches an umbrella. Final question for you: There have been some pundits kind of scoffing at the idea that young people—that's generally speaking, anywhere from. Gen Z uh, to older millennials, quote young people, that they really are just performing uh, in their disdain and hatred, and then in the case of his death, celebrating uh, for Kissinger, because they really don't understand this guy. You know, he hasn't been relevant in decades. Now that didn't really resonate with me. I think you could see the legacy of his. Uh, school of thought and how it's carried on for generations. You again to go back to Clinton. She said he was an advisor to her. What do you make of that argument? Do you? I mean, what do you say to someone who says, "Well, he he's really older generations' villain." He advised every president, in, you know, up to and including Joe Biden. Um, he is what in both parties most of the. Um, the elite foreign policy making class view as uh, what they would like themselves to be um, in terms of of his towering command over over U.S. foreign policy, um, and with a certain admiration for what they will call his ruthlessness. Um, he had any figure i mean it's just a stupid thing it's an ignorant thing to say um and I, I don't really know how else to respond to it really um you know think about it for more than for more than 5 seconds anyone with this sort of influence is going to leave just an enormous shadow enormous influence uh you know generations worth of proteges um one of the ha, let's go through them. Um, what his military assistant was Alexander Haig, who became a Secretary of State. Um, another deputy uh, was Brent Scowcroft, um, another national security advisor and extremely close confidant um, to to the elder Bush, and you know with influence over the younger Bushes. Um, you know, quite greatly diminished, but you know, nevertheless, in in, in those kinds of circles. Um, Another of his protégés, Jerry Bremer, ran the occupation of Iraq. Um, I think any elder millennial ought to remember that. Um, and then, you know, more generally, um, the way he established himself um, as a towering figure of emulation for so much of the rest of the foreign policy establishment. You know, if, it's if, if Henry Kissinger is irrelevant, why did so many bold-faced names attend his 100th anniversary Met Gala function, um, his, 100th his 100th birthday celebration at the Met Gala. I believe, um, didn't Tony Blinken, the current Secretary of State, attend that? Um, I think um, it, it's, it's, 
Henry Kissinger, like the reason why so many of 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 these of these young people you refer to um, are so infuriated by Henry Kissinger and cognizant of him is precisely because he is not irrelevant. He is instead exemplary of an American foreign policy and an American elite impunity that they rightly find disgusting, that they rightly find something to tear down instead of apologize for, um, and that they rightly judge its apologists as being um, venal and untrustworthy. Spencer Ackerman, writer of Henry Kissinger, War Criminal, Beloved by America's Ruling Class, finally dies the obituary in Rolling Stone out now. Go read it. It's it's fantastic. Spencer, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people follow you and find more of your work? Thank you so much, Jordan. It's always fun to talk to you. I'm looking forward to getting that sticker. Um, <laughs> you can find me. I'm not really on Twitter anymore. Um, my name on Blue Sky um, and uh, Instagram uh, is Attackerman. Um, I have a newsletter um, at ghost at foreverwars.ghost.io. It's called Forever Wars. Um, it's about the permutations of the war on terror. We've been taking an extremely close look at uh, the current Israeli uh, devastation of Gaza, um, as well as uh, some, some current uh, really um, important um, maneuverings that will determine the future of bulk surveillance um, that, are, that are happening um, at the end of this year. It's called Forever Wars. You can find it at foreverwars.ghost.io. Um, please subscribe. Um, I'm a columnist for The Nation magazine, um, so you can find my work there um, multiple times a month as well. Um, I have a piece right now called In Gaza, uh, we see the difference between international law and the rules-based international order um, that's in the current issue of the print magazine um, that I'm honored to be in, um, given the, the, the cover story of Mohammed El-Kurd um, and his incredible um, lecture-turned-essay, um, The Right to Speak for Ourselves. Um, also, um, I'm a comic book writer. Um, I have a mini-series um, for DC Comics called Waller versus Wildstorm. Uh, the fourth and concluding issue um, is out in comic stores um, on June 12th. Make sure to pick that up. If you uh, like the Nixon, I'm sorry, I keep saying Nixon. If you like the Kissinger obituary um, and if you, you like kind of the way we've been talking in this conversation, I promise you, you will love it. Um, it is very much a... Uh, Cold War spycraft thriller. Um, it's my first um, work of published fiction, um, and I really put a lot of the same themes um, that I do in my journalism into this, except now you can see them with superheroes. Now, I will say before we wrap, when I went to go pick up my copy of Waller vs. Wildstorm, I walked into my local comic book store and said, I'm looking for a graphic novel. It's called Waller vs. Wildstorm. And there were two guys at the counter and simultaneously, they both looked at me. It's not a graphic novel. <laughs> and if you also are are new to comics, please take that advice. Do not call it a graphic novel when you go and buy your copy of all of them. Waller versus Wildstorm by Spencer Ackerman. Spencer, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Jordan. <laughs>